Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God and it contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome to Know Your Bible. We're glad you're back with us this week and ready to study the Bible. I hope that uh, we all get to know our Bible a little bit better today, and that's the purpose of this program. Uh, we're a little different than a lot of religious TV programs. Uh, we don't tell you what we think you need to know. We let you ask us what you'd like to know. Then we try to find answers in the Bible. Uh, so that's what we're going to do for the next 30 minutes. You'll notice there's a phone number and a website at the bottom of the screen. Use those anytime to get in touch with us and just tell us what you'd like us to talk about. Uh, some people ask very detailed questions or question a doctrine or want to know if something's really in the Bible. And some people have uh, personal questions about life and uh, family and current events and they want to know what the Bible has to say about those things. So we get all kinds of questions and we'll try to find you a Bible answer or a Bible principle uh, so that we know what the Bible says and, like I said, know your Bible a little bit better. Glad you're with us today. Let me introduce Toby Levering, uh, my partner here. Hi, Toby. Hi, Steve. Glad you're here and ready to go. We've got uh, lots of good ones saved up, and we're always trying to keep up and get ahead, but we never do. We just keep getting more questions than we can keep up with, but we're glad uh, glad that we've got them. Uh, let's ask our viewers one first before we get started. This uh, about a bird that brought some food to Elijah. What kind of bird was that? A famous Old Testament story, and we'll see if you know the answer to that at the end of the program. Give you the answer then. Uh, speaking of animals, looks like I got the first question, so let's talk about unicorns for a little while. Viewer wants to know Does the Bible mention unicorns? And my answer to that is well, yes and no. Uh, number one, it depends on what translation you got. Uh, there's only one translation that has the word unicorn in it. The King James was translated that way. Uh, all the rest of them say wild ox or horned animal or something like that. Uh, as I understand it, the Hebrew word that's translated unicorn there uh, meant a horned animal. And some people think it meant a one-horned animal. And some people think that's not a real good translation. It just meant a horned animal. Uh, but for whatever reason, the King James translators took it to mean one-horned animal, and so they translated it unicorn. Now, whether there really was a one-horned animal or not, we don't know. Uh, there may have been. Uh, I don't think it was like our fairy tale pretty ponies. Uh, don't think it was a mythical creature, the unicorn, but there might have been a one-horned animal. In fact, we still got some one-horned animals around, the rhinoceros, a one-horned animal. Uh, so it's possible that there was such a thing as a one-horned animal. Now, whatever it was, uh, it was different than a pretty little white pony with one horn in the middle of its head, because Job is one place where God describes uh, what the translators of the King James called a unicorn. 
And let's look at that in Job chapter 39. Uh, this verse says, if you're reading the King James, it says unicorn. All the other translations say wild ox. And here's what God's talking about. He says, will the wild ox or will the unicorn consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? Uh, what God's describing there is a wild animal. Uh, some people think it was a kind of a giant cow of some sort that uh, ran wild and was not domesticated. But God's talking about it. it says, I created these things and you can't even control them so you don't understand the questions you're asking is basically what that chapter is about. But he's describing a wild beast that can't be controlled by man. Now, whether it had one horn or two horns or three horns, I don't know. Uh, but he's describing some kind of strong, very strong, wild animal uh, that can't be controlled by man. So there may have been a one-horned animal in Old Testament days, uh, but it's usually translated wild ox. So... That's my okay. animal lesson for the day. <laughs> I was really hoping for a graphic on that question. Okay. Well, I've just got to say, I'm, there is no other program like Know Your Bible, and I don't say that to brag. I'm just saying we're going to jump from unicorns to my question, which is about church autonomy. Uh, I guarantee you find nothing like this uh, across your dial this morning. <laughs> People want to know about all sorts of things, and we're happy to answer for them. Please explain church autonomy. Well, autonomy simply means self-governing, and uh, in the in the, uh, church world, in the religious world, uh, you might hear the term non-denominational. Um, denominational means uh, of the same name. Uh, so some churches are governed by a conference or a governing denominational board. They make rules and they decide on what's acceptable and what's not, what, what they're going to do about this or that, and sometimes even involve decisions concerning money and missions. And there's one board or conference and then they make decisions and they pass those down to all the other churches of that denomination. Non-denominational churches are independent. Every church is self-governing. We believe that's the New Testament pattern. Yesterday evening, I happened to speak at one of our Know Your Bible sponsors, the Eastwood Church of Christ. It's a great group of folks, a very kind and polite and biblical and, and uh, just wonderful group of Christian family. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, but East, the Eastwood Church of Christ and the Northside Church of Christ are, are different. Uh, they have two different sets of elders, two different sets of deacons. Uh, they make decisions concerning uh, what ministries they do, what missions they support, uh, who they have on staff, and all of that. Uh, the decisions we make at Northside uh, don't over overlap with the decisions they make at Eastwood. Uh, in general, as you might go on vacation or travel, you might find some similarities among churches of Christ. But all of the churches uh, that you would visit are independent. Uh, they have different sizes, different cultures, different leadership, different styles. Diff all of that, the differences are uh, unique to each local congregation. Some churches of Christ have elders, some don't, aren't large enough to have elders, and they only have a, a group of men who will lead um, at a, a meeting of some type. But in general, they make all their own decisions, 
And we believe, uh, as I said before, that that uh, is the New Testament pattern that we see among different churches. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. He wrote to the church in Ephesus. Uh, they were of the same belief. They were following the same Lord, uh, but they were both uh, different churches and they dealt with different ways. Jesus wrote to the churches, the seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation. He had different things to say of each church, of each body of the Lord's people. They were all serving the same Lord, but different a group, a different collection of believers and uh, different strengths and weaknesses, of course. So autonomy simply means that each in, each church is independent and they uh, are all going to, I'm going to say, uh, be let the Bible, let the New Testament be their guide uh, for their matters of faith and practice. But the decisions they make is up to the eldership and the leaders at the local congregation. Let's look at what Peter said to a group of elders. Uh, specifically, he said in 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Now we believe, of course, and know that Jesus is the head of the church, uh, but the elders and the shepherds govern and make decisions. They have some things under their care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So each <coughs> eldership and leadership have different decisions that they make and they are entrusted to lead. All righty, I got a question about speaking in tongues and the viewer wants to know what should we do about speaking in tongues today? Uh, well, let me explain very briefly what we believe the Bible teaches about speaking in tongues. Uh, number one, the translation tongues is confusing because it's really languages. Uh, New Testament speaking in tongues was really speaking in other languages. Happened on the day of Pentecost and very rarely after that. Uh, but it was so foreigners could understand the message of God. It was the ability to talk to anyone about the gospel message in their own language. So that's what the gift was. And it did exist. It helped spread the church. It, uh, missionaries used it. Paul used it more than anyone, he said, because he went to so many different countries and foreign places. He needed to be able to speak in other languages, so he did. Uh, the other thing the New Testament says about it is that in the time of the Corinthian church, uh, they had it messed up. They weren't using that gift, and some of them had the real gift. They weren't using it right, and so Paul wrote to them to correct them about that. And chapters 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians, uh, that's what he's dealing with. He said, let me talk to you about spiritual gifts. And let me straighten you out on that. And when he got to the topic of speaking in tongues and receiving direct knowledge and all the other miraculous gifts... Uh, <clears throat> he said you shouldn't be so focused on them and so excited about them uh, because they're not that important is basically what he said <clears throat> and he said specifically that they were going to stop so don't worry about them so much and let's read that verse where he says they're going to stop and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8 he says as for prophecies they will pass away as for tongues they will cease as for knowledge, it will pass away. And he meant this time of spiritual miraculous gifts is going to stop once the church 
is built, once we have the written word of God and all that, uh, those things are going to stop and go away. So that was his argument with the people. Now, we believe, uh, in answer to our viewers' question, so what should we do about speaking in tongues today? Well, we don't think there's anything we can do because the gift doesn't exist. Uh, nobody's given that gift today. <clears throat> but I know some of you are saying, well, I've heard people speak in tongues. Well, you've heard people speak in a language that you don't understand, uh, but Nobody understands it because nobody today, and this is proven by scientific investigation over and over again, uh, nobody today speaks in a foreign language that they haven't previously studied. <clears throat> just doesn't happen. So, 1 Corinthians 13, 14 describe uh, that transition. Uh, viewer wants to know what should we do about it. Let me propose it this way. If somebody really thinks they have the gift of tongues today, the ability to speak in another language that uh, they haven't learned, well, then what you do about it is you have to follow the rules that Paul laid down. For the people that weren't practicing the gift properly, he laid down some rules in 1 Corinthians 14. And if you want to speak in tongues today and think you can, you got to follow the rules. So let me tell you what some of the rules were, and it might make you think twice about whether you can speak in tongues or not compared to what people do today. One of the rules was it was for unbelievers. It's not to help believers be built up. It's for unbelievers to convince them that you work for God. Uh, if you can speak a language that you've never learned, that's pretty convincing. So it's for unbelievers. Uh, Paul said in the worship assembly, Never more than three can speak in tongues. It's got to be limited to two or three people. They've got to take turns. They've got to go one at a time. Uh, there's got to be an interpreter there, somebody with the gift of interpretation to say what this means so everybody can understand it. And no women can do it in the worship assembly, men only. And it's got to be fitting and orderly. It can't be wild and raucous. It's got to be orderly and decent. Uh, those are the rules that Paul laid down. So if you think you can speak in tongues today and your church wants to practice that, be sure you follow the rules at the end of 1 Corinthians 14 there. Uh, but don't believe anybody has the real gift today. I'll take just a moment and tell you a good way to study the Bible. Uh, We've got some free materials that we're happy to share with you and help you learn about the Bible. Spend a little time each week explaining those and <clears throat> telling you how you can get them and know your Bible better. Uh, we put this picture up of the first eight lessons, the first series that we've got. We've got a number of different series that you can study through and learn things about your Bible. This is the first one, the basic one, a good non-denominational Bible study that just explains the Bible, starting with the Old and the New Testament, help you understand the difference there, and then goes on to other topics in the Bible. Uh, thousands of folks have taken us up on that and learned a lot about their Bible, and we'd offer that to you today also. Phone number, website on the screen, Use either of those and just tell us, I'd like that free course. <clears throat> we send you the first one and let you try it. Uh, if you like it, send it back to us and we'll send you lesson number two. If you don't like it, we won't bother you anymore. But, uh, we think you'll get a lot of good out of it. So give us a call or log on. Let us send you that free study material. 
All right, a viewer wants to ask a question that a lot of religious programs answers theme, seem to answer these days. Does God uh, want us to be rich? Well, uh, if I assume that you are viewing this program from within the United States, um, my guess is that you are rich. Uh, in fact, in my opinion, uh, everyone who is in this country uh, is exceedingly blessed, even those that we would call poor. Uh, they have extra clothes in their closet. They have uh, uh, food for more than just today. Uh, they may have not have a lot of money, but they probably have some money in their home or in their bank account. Uh, they have running water, and uh, and uh, they never worry about the electricity being on or off. And so, from that perspective, uh, when the entire world, uh, many people live on just a few dollars a day. Uh, we in this country are very, very rich. And so when you ask me if God wants us to be rich, uh, my first uh, question is, uh, what is rich? Now, that's a very relative term. It's always dependent on where I am. You know, whatever income I make, anyone who makes more than that, well, they're rich. Anyone who makes less than that, well, they're poor. And uh, the Bible doesn't really, uh, the, the Bible has many, many stories of people of faith who had money, and people who didn't. And so I think uh, there are lots of scriptures on money, but in general, what matters to God is not how much you have, but how you use what you have. Uh, the biblical term, the idea for that, is called stewardship. Uh, in our modern vernacular, we'd call that management. Uh, if you have a little, well, do you manage that little well? Uh, do you use it to bless others and help the kingdom and encourage good things and, prov and provide and support good ministries and works? You can do that even if you can only do it with a little bit. Uh, so it's not so much how much you have, but what you do with what you have. Uh, all uh, material possessions belong to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so everything that we have is uh, really not ours at all. It's just on loan to us, given to us to manage for a time. So there's nothing uh, necessarily evil or immoral about having wealth. Um, as I said, if you're watching this program from within the United States, uh, by most of the world standards, you would be considered wealthy. And you might not consider yourself wealthy at all, but it's, it's uh, relative. So you have to take view of how are you using the blessings which God has given you. I think the Bible has some great instructions and if you want some specifics I'll point you to the book of Proverbs because uh, there's a lot of good uh, verses in there about how to handle your money and how to manage it and to use it in the ways that are wise as far as spending and saving and even giving. Uh, I will say that the Bible does seem to indicate that if you have more uh, there's a greater responsibility on you to use it wisely and so people often will say, oh, sure, I want to be rich, uh, but they don't want the responsibility that comes with having to manage that money and use it wisely where it's a blessing and not a curse uh, to them and to their families. Uh, let me read what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and uh, encourage you to do your own study with uh, some verses in Proverbs. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth. Uh, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous 
and willing to share. And in this way, they will <coughs> lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly uh, life. So does God want us to be rich? He wants you to use his riches in a way that honors him. All righty, good explanation. Can a preacher become an apostle is what this viewer wants to know. Can a preacher be an apostle? Well, I've seen church signs uh, that say on there that somebody is the apostle and then has their name and they're the pastor or reverend or preacher or something there, but they call themselves the apostles. So a viewer wants to know, can a preacher be an apostle? Well, no, if you mean one of the 12 apostles. Uh, yes, if you just mean a messenger. Uh, the trick is the Greek word apostle just means one sent out, a messenger. And so in that sense, all Christians are messengers and apostles of the gospel. Uh, we're supposed to share it with people and we're sent out to do that. Uh, but in the other sense, the New Testament uses the term apostle uh, for a very specific group of men. Uh, Jesus originally chose 12, and then they chose one to replace Judas, so that made 13 uh, total. And then Paul was appointed an apostle by Jesus later, uh, out of season he calls it. So he was the 14th man to hold the title apostle. Now, if somebody today wants to say they're one of those kind of apostles, I'd have to say, no, I don't think so. Uh, if you just mean a messenger, okay, well probably be better to call yourself a messenger <laughs> than to sound like you're one of the apostles. But if you want to really be an apostle today, you got to meet the criteria. And let's just check that real quick in Acts chapter 1. When they got ready to select somebody to replace Judas, here were the rules. Acts one twenty one. Peter said, Choose one of the men who have been with us for the whole time, from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So if you saw John's baptism, if you saw Jesus uh, taken up into heaven and you witnessed his resurrected body, then you can be an apostle. You qualify. Uh, but if you didn't do all those things today, you can't be a real apostle. So when I see those signs that say apostle so-and-so, works here, I think there's either a really old guy <laughs> in there uh, or he's not really an apostle apostle. So whatever the word means, uh, yes and no, can't be an apostle. Let me take this moment and invite you to visit a Church of Christ near you. We're kept on the air and sponsored by Churches of Christ and we appreciate that. Let me mention two of them today, uh, the Church in Augusta. Uh, just a little bit east of Wichita here in Kansas and the Wichita East Point Church out on 127th Street. Both of those are great groups of folks that uh, worship and think a lot like we do here on the program. Uh, if you go to Augusta, Jesse LeMay is the minister there. I know you'd enjoy hearing him. I did the other day. and uh, He delivers a, a good message, very good speaker. And uh, Michael Jones is the new minister at East Point, so stop out and visit them. Uh, if you're looking for a church home and you live close to one of those places, you, you'd be warmly welcomed. Uh, if you're anywhere in our viewing audience, there's probably a Church of Christ near you. Uh, drop in to give them a visit sometime and tell them thank you for providing Know Your Bible. All right, Toby, give another one All here. All right, a viewer wants to ask, uh, what does this verse mean? What does, quote, Enoch walked with God and was not 
uh, end quote, mean. Okay, well, this is found in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, and that's on the screen. It says, Enoch, this is one translation, it says, walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Now, well, we're not given too much detail about Enoch uh, other than this passage in this section of Genesis. Uh, but what we can understand is that uh, clearly he was faithful to the Lord, a righteous man. And for some reason, God allowed him to not experience death. And uh, kind of a neat little story simply means he <clears throat> didn't die in the normal way. Uh, the only other person that we know of in Scripture that had such an experience would have been the prophet Elijah. And so uh, these were uh, special and unique circumstances. Most people, as the Scriptures say, are appointed unto death once uh, and after that to face judgment. <coughs> these two men uh, didn't experience death, were simply taken. Uh, and the Scripture says he was no more. Uh, John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, here's what Jesus said uh, concerning the promise for us. Uh, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And so we can take hope that uh, even though we probably will die, unlike Enoch and Elijah, uh, that though we die, we can still live through Christ. All righty. Uh, don't know exactly how that happened, but it Me was pretty either. neat. I heard one person <laughs> explain at one time that Enoch was out walking with God and yep. communicating with him. And at the end of the day, God said, we're closer to my house than yours. Yep. Let's, oh, just, okay. let's just go there. <laughs> so <laughs> don't know if that's how it worked, but uh, Enoch must have been a special character. That's probably in the message. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jesus wasn't born in the time of Moses. Uh, so how were people saved in those days? Well, good question. Uh, now, Christ's death ultimately paid for all sin. I think if you want to call it being retroactive, you can say that and try to figure that all out theologically. Uh, but the Old Testament's pretty clear about how people were counted righteous. And let's just read one verse that makes it pretty clear, Romans uh, chapter 4, 3, Paul's explaining it. And he says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. All right, so how did Abraham get credited righteous or get saved, if you want to use that terminology? Well, he believed God. <clears throat> well, what did that entail? Well, you read Hebrews 11 and you see uh, when God told him to do something, Abraham did it. He believed God. He didn't just believe that God existed. James says that even demons believe that. Abraham believed God. He trusted God. So when God told him to leave his homeland and go someplace that he'd tell him when he got there, Abraham did it. When he told him to sacrifice his son, Abraham was willing to do it. So he believed God. God saw his faith. He credited it to him as righteousness. And he was credited as righteous or as saved. Now, like I said, the blood of Jesus ultimately paid for that sin. But everybody in the Old Testament uh, that was saved was saved by their faith, by their faith and obedience to God when he told them to do something. So uh, that's how he, Abraham was saved. That's how everybody in the Old Testament was saved. All right, I think we better answer our trivia questionnaire today. And this was about a bird that brought food to Elijah uh, when Elijah was in trouble and had to hide out for a while. And it was a raven that God had the ravens feed Elijah and bring him food <clears throat> as he was by the brook there and uh, got fed by the ravens. So 
that's the answer to that one. We're glad you've been with us today. Uh, we're going to come back next week and try to answer some more questions. We've got plenty of good ones coming up. Until then, you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.